All right, let's start with Psalm 139 tonight, if you would. Psalm 139, we're going to read a section of that scripture and let it introduce our thoughts for this evening. Beginning in verse 13, Psalm 139. For you have formed my inward parts, you have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Lots to say about that passage included in which I think you can surely see that God knew us when we were in our mother's womb. So how dare we destroy a child in its mother's womb. But secondly, it speaks of how fearfully and wonderfully we are made and that God knows us <clears throat> and that he's the one that has prepared how we are to be in his image and to be so designed that it's remarkable. So tonight I want to turn our attention to some things about the human body and really other living systems also. But since I think we're probably most interested in us, we'll focus in on that tonight. And the fact is, there's an awful lot we know now as human beings that God's known all along, but we know better than we've ever known. And I like this little book called What Darwin Didn't Know by uh, Dr. Jeffrey Simons, medical doctor. The whole book is about all the systems in the human body and the magnificent things we've learned about them in the last 150 years since Darwin's day. And uh, if you're interested in just exploring the magnificence of how marvelously and wonderfully we're made, from a scientific perspective, here's a good book for you to do that. And I mentioned the other day I'm leaving a bibliography with Edwin. Don't let me walk off without that. It's on the little thumb drive, and I want to be sure to copy it over for you. Uh, of the text I've referred to, plus a host of others if you want to investigate this subject further. And here, folks, is the beginning of all of this for modern times, Darwin's Origin of the Species. How many in this class have read this book? All right, three of you. This is the seminal work, folks. And I will tell you that I think this book, this text right here, has had more impact on humanity than any other text other than the Bible in terms of impacting our worldview. Because this gentleman was somehow able, with his reasonings, to convince the intelligentsia of his day and on to the modern day that our worldview was wrong when we thought about God creating and that we don't need God anymore and that all of the things we see about us, including all the magnificence of human bodies, came about by natural causes. God forbid. But that's his legacy. Now, for the sake of time this evening, I am going to leave off the other introductory remarks that relate to this book and get right to the subject at hand, which is God's other book. You've been here enough to know that we believe there's a a testimony of God in his other book that deserves great and careful attention. And we see it better now than we ever have in the history of mankind. The argument from complexity tonight 
again gets at the core ideas. How did these complex systems come about? They either came about by natural means, and the evolutionists call it reductionism. Let me explain that to you just a minute. Richard Dawkins and those of his ilk say that it doesn't matter how complex something is, you can reduce it down to little bitty tiny simple steps. And each of those steps is so simple that the natural forces could have accomplished those steps. And if you add all those little tiny steps up, you get this complex thing that looks like it's designed, but it really wasn't. You got it? That's reductionism. That's the basic idea of an evolutionist as to how all these complex things came about. So the question I'm going to be asking you tonight is, can you even in your wildest imagination conceive that the systems we're going to talk about tonight could have come about by tiny little steps, changes over millions of years of time to produce what we see? Because that is precisely what the evolutionists claim. On the other hand, the creationist says no complex organs and complex systems, the likes of which we will investigate, would never have happened had intelligence not acted upon matter. Just much like if you look at the Sistine Chapel in Rome, and you look at that ceiling, and you see the magnificent painting no one in his right mind would believe that the chemicals made up of the paint could somehow produce that magnificent painting without intelligence acting on it. And the same is true of complex systems. So let's let Darwin talk. I'm quoting from the book I just showed you, Origin of Species. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive Slight modifications. My theory would absolutely break down. I want to defend Darwin a little bit. If you've read his book carefully, you will say to yourself, this is an honest man. Because Darwin would present his theory and then he'd say, this really looks ridiculous. I mean, he'd say that himself. And then he'd say something like this. If you could show me one complex organ that could not have been formed by small changes over long periods of time, my theory is useless. In other words, he would tell you how to critique his own theory. And then he'd proceed to tell you why his theory is still good. And he would try to overcome those critiques. But he would critique his own theory. And I like that. So here's one. Do you, can you think of any complex organ that could not possibly have come about by small changes over long periods of time? Look, if it's Darwinism that's going to explain it, it's small changes over long periods of time, and that's Richard Dawkins, the blind watchmaker that I read to you the first night. I think there are lots of them, folks. So here's an illustration that comes from this little book, which I'll be referring to a lot tonight. It's called Darwin's Black Box. Maybe you've heard of it. It's been around a good while. It was first published in 96. There's an updated edition 10 years later with an additional appendix in which he says, the picture I painted in 96 is worse now in 2006 for the evolutionist. He uses this illustration. Suppose this was in your front yard. 
and you found your neighbor over here on this side of the ditch in your yard. You said, what are you, how did you get over here into this side of my yard? He said, I jumped over the ditch. Well, you probably wouldn't have any issue with that. That's a pretty tiny place. But what if your ditch were that big? And he's over here on this side. And he says, well, I just jumped over the ditch. And you say, well, maybe you're a pretty good long jumper. It's about three feet. What if it were this big? And he's over here. And you say, how did you get over? He said, I jumped over the ditch. You say, I want to see that. You go do that again. That's about 12 feet across. I don't believe you jumped over that ditch. And what if it were that ditch? <laughs> and he was over here on this side, and now he's over here. He said, I just jumped over. He said, right. You know, you reach a point where the story is just incredible, don't you? About jumping over ditches. He says, but he's a smart neighbor. He says, well, now, wait a minute. What I did was I jumped from this point way over here. Let's see if I can find my little pointer. There it is. I jumped from here to this little butte, and then I jumped to that one, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one, and 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 this one, I finally got over here. And you look out there, and you say, I don't see all those buttes. He said, well, oh, they disappeared after I jumped off of them. But they were there before. And it was really a series of little tiny jumps over a long period of time that finally got me over here. But all the buttes that were there before are not there now. That's kind of like the way it is with Darwinism, folks. They have to have a bunch of little tiny stages that lead you from a simple organism to a very complex one. The problem is none of them are there in the historical record. But you've got to believe it. So here's Darwin on the eye. Wouldn't you propose the eye as a complex organ that would defeat his theory? I mean, that's the one everybody uses. And he said, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, it's amazing, people, your eye will automatically focus in and out. You don't have to do anything. Darwin knew about that. And then he says, for admitting different amounts of light, children, you know that if we don't darken this room that your eye automatically closes up? No. What does it do? opens wider so you let more light in. Automatically. You don't have to say, now I, will you please open up? No, it just does it. Darwin knew about that. And then he says, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, did you know your eye has some automatic ways that it corrects for problems? And then he says, to say that this could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. And I say, Amen. It does seem absurd. I pause for just to think about the eye for a minute. It's absolutely marvelous. Besides the fact that I love to look in Merrill's eyes. But what the eye does is amazing. But here's what Darwin went on to say. Yet, reason tells me that if numerous gradations from a perfect and complex eye to one very imperfect and simple, each grade being useful to its possessor can be shown to exist. 
Let me have, let you follow the reasoning here, folks. Darwin said, if I can show you that in nature there are some very, very simple eyes, and then through a series of stages there are more and more complex eyes up to the very complex ones. And in each stage, each type of eye gives the possessor of that eye some benefit. Now, folks, what he just stated is a true statement. You can show there are different kinds of eyes. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. And the, the different eyes, as you progress up the stages of complexity, gives an advantage to the creatures that have them. That's his first argument. Then he says, if further the eye does vary ever so slightly, would you agree that eyes vary? That's a true statement. There are variations in eyes. I was born with eyes that need help. <laughs> I'm wearing contacts. In addition to that, I have to put on these because I can't read with my contacts anymore. It's hateful. You have all kinds of variations in your eyes in this audience. So we have to agree that nature produces variations in eyeballs, don't we? And then he says, if the variations are inherited, are variations in eyes inherited? Yes, they are. My mom and daddy both wear glasses. So do I. And so do some of my children. And we know a lot more about inheritance than Darwin did. But so here's what he says. First, if I can show you a whole series of eyes from simple to very complex that exist in nature. Second, I can show you that eyes vary. And third, that they're inherited, those variations. And if any variation or modification in the organ be ever useful to an animal under changing conditions of life, can you imagine that some variations in eyes would be better for you? Then he says, the difficulty of believing that a perfect and complex eye could be formed by natural selection, though insuperable by our imagination, can hardly be considered real. And so with that explanation, Darwin just says, that's what happened. Eyes evolved. Jellyfish have simple photoreceptors for eyes. Did you know that? On the surface up here of the jellyfish, there's a little very light-sensitive spot. That's about all it is. It responds to light. When light hits it, it does something to the chemistry, and the jellyfish knows, well, there's light, and he can either go toward it or away from it. That's probably the simplest kind of an eye there is in nature. And Darwin would say, you see, that's probably the first type of eye that evolved, just a photoreceptor. Well, that's not very hard to imagine that evolution could have done that. Evolution evolved to the point that part of the skin got sensitive to light and the chemistry changed a little bit. Little tiny steps. And if you think that's too big, then they'll make up six smaller ones. You see? Marine limpets have cupped eyes. And look, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. And if you were in my class in biology, if I were an evolutionist, this is exactly what I'd do with you. First, you got an eye that developed that all it was was a little sensitive spot on the skin that responded to light. Then over time, as creatures evolved, 
the eye developed around it a little cup, a little indentation, so that that light-sensitive spot is now at the bottom of the cup. Would there be some advantage to that? Yes, because the cup helps direct the light to the photosensitive spot. So the creature that has that particular kind of eye has some advantage over the one that doesn't. And therefore, nature selects those types of eyes to be favored. Well, marine limpets have that very kind of an eye. All it is is a little cup with a light-sensitive spot at the bottom. And Darwin would say to you, why is it so hard for you to believe that that's the way eyes evolved over time? Snails. Let me illustrate snail eyes. Snail eyes are a little cup with light-sensitive spots at the bottom. We've already said that's a couple of stages toward evolution. Snails just have a little lens over the top. Well, can't you imagine that over a period of time, little changes could develop so that now you get a little lens kind of just covering that cup? Is there some advantage to that evolutionarily? Yes, because a lens helps focus the light even better, and you can kind of control what light comes in there with a lens. Folks, the reason I want to spend time with you like this is because you need to at least give folks the chance to think like they do. And everything said about evolution is not just pure foolishness. In fact, if you ask me if I'm evolutionist, I'd say yes and no, like any good politician. I firmly believe in limited change, that nature can perpetrate limited change. They do it a lot in nature. What I don't believe in is that all living things have come from a common ancestry by natural causes. That's a leap of faith I can't take, and the evidence of nature doesn't support it. But I believe in limited change. And by the way, since I'm talking in a church audience here, I will tell you I believe the Bible supports that notion. The Genesis account of creation says that God created kinds and that they reproduced after their kind. So what is that kind? I challenge you to do a little study about that biblically. And what you'll find out is the word kind is a pretty broad term. It certainly is not relegated to being a species as we use that word. Species is a man-made construct. So how much variation does God allow within kind? I think he allows a lot but it's limited. And you do not go beyond kinds. And I think the evidence of the natural world supports that remarkably. But a Darwinist doesn't put any limits. So the snail maybe represents the next step in the evolution of an eye. And then maybe the fruit fly, and then maybe the honeybee, and then the eagle's eye, and then our eye. I'm just telling you, there are stages of eyes in nature. And his argument is, that's the way it happened. Now, you remember the example of the ditches? Here's what Behe says, and what I'm telling you tonight. Darwin had the luxury of not knowing what was going, down, what was going on down underneath all of that. 
What we know now is that simple photoreceptor on the jellyfish eye, just to get that is a massive Grand Canyon. And every stage I've described to you in these series of slides, going from one type of eye to another, which I don't think is what happens, represents a Grand Canyon when you look at the chemistry underneath. And so frankly, as, as Behe argues in his book, Darwin's Black Box, it's not significant anymore to look at eyes. What you need to look at is what's going on inside. And what an evolutionist has got to explain is not just the eye itself, the physical eye, but the chemistry underneath it. So you see, I'm back to my favorite subject. By irreducibly complex, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function wherein the removal of any one of these parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. Behe argues in nature there are all kinds of systems that are irreducibly complex. They're so complex you take out one piece, nothing happens. And the eye is one of them. In his book, he goes through about eight of those systems. Tonight, I'm going to go through two of them and show you just a little bit about the complexity of what's going on underneath. And what I want you to remember out of this lecture is that every step you want to talk about in evolution is a grand canyon. And to believe it happened by little stages over millions of years is as incredible as thinking you could jump across the Grand Canyon. You see, we know the biochemistry of vision very well. We're not just familiar with the eyeball. And by the way, by the time Darwin wrote his book in 1859, the eyeball had been pretty well studied, dissected, so they knew about the various parts, the vitreous body and the... And you see this kind of a purple layer here at the back of the eye. Anybody know what that's called? This is a class, by the way. Anybody know what that's called at the back of the eye that receives the light? It's called the retina. They were familiar with the retinal surface back here. You see this is part of the retina back here. And, of course, the cornea and the lens and the iris and all the parts where the light comes in and then lands on the retina, which receives the signal, and then it goes down through the optic nerve to the brain as interpreted in the brain, and then you get vision. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I am only going to speak to you about this retinal layer. There are much more, there are many more things going on here. But we know a whole lot about what's happening in the retina here that allows you to see. So let me help you with that. That one little layer looks like this when it's blown up under a microscope. This is the retinal layer. And it consists of a series of parts. As we'll point out, here are the bipolar neurons. Here are the ganglion cells. And here it is blown up a little bit. Here are the rods. And the cones, the bipolar neurons, the ganglion neurons, and here's the optic nerve down here. So here's the pigmented epithelium that's the outside where the light strikes, and then it comes down through the system to the optic nerve and then heads out to the brain. But see, we don't just see it at that level. We can take one of those. See this over here? Hard to read, isn't it? That's the outer segment. This is the inner segment, the Golgi body. There's one rod cell. That's a big old extended cell. Here's the nucleus. Remember we talked about the nucleus last night that has all the DNA in it? 
And then here are the various parts of it. And you see these discs up here? Folks, those discs are absolutely critical to seeing. And then let's take this little piece right here that contains some of those discs, and let's blow it up again, magnify it, and that's this piece right here. You see, we've taken that little piece and magnified it. And look at all those discs there. And then here are the various bodies, the microtubules, and the rough endoplasmic reticulum, and so on, about which we spoke last night. But in these discs now, let's take that little tiny piece right there and magnify it, and you, it looks like this. Here's the disc membrane. Here's the plasma membrane. Here's the space in between. And right there, ladies and gentlemen, is where the chemistry happens. I know you're excited. But first of all, let me say to you, we don't just look at the eyeball now. We can look down to the level of what's happening with the chemicals inside that make you be able to see, which is where we're headed next. And it's all happening right in here, inside these discs, inside that cell, which is inside the rest of that artichoke. All right, here it is up, blown up again. And now for the next few minutes, I need to read you just a little bit because I can't remember all this stuff. And I don't expect you to remember this either. Here's what I want out of this. As I read you about the biochemistry of what's happening in this region right in here, I want you to be overwhelmed with the intricacy of the chemistry and how it all fits together. All right, here we go. When light first strikes the retina, a photon interacts with a molecule called 11 cis retinal, which rearranges within picoseconds you know what a picosecond is? <laughs> it's like a picosecond is about the time it takes light to cross the breadth of a hair. Anybody remember how fast light travels? Fast, yeah. 186,000 miles per second. I don't know how long it would take hair to cross this hair. I mean, light to cross that hair right there. Not very long. That's a picosecond. So when light strikes your retina, in a picosecond it takes a chemical and changes it from 11 cis retinal to 11 trans retinal. It changes the shape of the molecule, and that forces the change of the shape in a protein called rhodopsin. You see that right there? That's rhodopsin. Its shape changes, and uh, the retinal is tightly bound to it. The protein's metamorphosis alters its behavior. Now it's called metarhodopsin 2. The protein sticks to another protein called transducin. Right there. These two stick together. Before bumping into the metarhodopsin 2, the transducin had tightly bound a small molecule called GDP, which changes then to GTP. And then these two stick together. Stay with me. But when transducin interacts with the metrodopsin 2, the GDP falls off and the molecule of GTP binds to the transducin. So now you've got RH, T, and GTP all bound together. The GTP transducin metrodopsin 2 now binds to a protein called phosphodiesterase, right there, PDE. And this whole entourage of the phosphodiesterase acquires the chemical ability to cut a molecule called CGMP, right here and it becomes 5-GMP. So all of this entourage together ends up cutting this molecule and changing its basic structure. 
and thus the amount of CGMP molecules in the cell lowers its concentration. It's kind of like pulling the plug in a bathtub and the water starts going down. So when you reduce the amount of CGMP here, that's critically important. You see it over here? It's in this space, and what happens in here has a huge amount to do with whether you see or not. Another membrane protein which binds CGMP is called an ion channel. See this ion channel over here? It allows ions in and out. Sodium and calcium ions flow in and out here of this channel, and this molecule right here also influences that, whether this is open or closed. Now I'm going to stop reading and just tell you. What happens as this process takes place is this ion balance changes, and because of that, you get an electrical discharge which goes down this membrane, down to the optic nerve, and spins off to the brain. There's an imbalance of charge due to the chemistry. Now, I'm going to pause here again and say, please forgive me every eyeball for the miserable, incomplete picture I just gave you. Because while that's going on that I've just described to you, there's 16 other things going on, all in balance that allow this all to take place. Please understand. What I have just described to you, ladies and gentlemen, in this chart is the forward reaction where you're changing CGMP to 5GMP, which closes the sodium channel. You get hyperpolarization. It also closes this calcium channels, and you get a decrease in systolic calcium plus 2, which reduces the amount of positive charge, unbalances, and sends an electrical charge. That's what's happened so far. What we haven't talked about is how that electrical charge goes through the optic nerve to your brain and translates into livid, I mean vivid, three-dimensional color. All chemistry. Now, what you don't know is if that's all that happened, ladies and gentlemen, you'd be blind in five minutes. You listening? If what I just described to you, this forward reaction, is all that happened, you'd run out of CGMP, your redoxin would be all clogged up in a, in, a, in a molecule of massive size, and you'd run out of stuff and you'd go blind. So what happens in your eye is that almost immediately a reverse reaction begins to take place in which GTP and guanylate cyclase. Now, let me see if you remember. Remember last night I said if a word ends in A-S-E, what is it? An enzyme. Thank you so much. And an enzyme is a protein. Folks, did you know how many proteins I've already talked about in this lesson? About 20. Each one has its own specific responsibility. Each one coded in the DNA that goes through all that process I told you about last night. So what happens almost immediately is this inactive substance becomes active with guanylate cyclase with an enzyme and starts doing the reverse reaction. It reproduces CGMP. It opens these channels back up. You get your redoxin back and you start over. So there's this finely balanced system that's going on all the time. In picoseconds, 
And you can see. So Darwin can sit in his uh, studio and can think about different kinds of eyes and say, well, it would be a simple matter to get a photoreceptor. Are you kidding me? You know how complicated the chemistry is of a jellyfish? Just to have a photoreceptor on the sensitive part of his skin, that in itself is a Grand Canyon. And to get from that to a human eye that has all this complex interplay that I'm telling you about, folks, it's incredible. This one I'm not even going to take time to tell you about. All I'm going to do is flash through it. You don't appreciate blood clotting. You just don't. Because your body just does it. You need to know how at least complex that is. Have you ever watched this happen? I have one of those on my knee after playing basketball. It's just an open sore. And the body does this over time. Absolutely amazing what the body can do. And blood clotting is a life or death matter, isn't it? Your blood doesn't clot properly. And may I tell you that blood clotting is a whole cascade of reactions, which going in one direction clots your blood, and if it kept going, you would clot to death. So what has to happen is the whole process has to be reversed, just like in the eye where you stop the clotting so you don't clot yourself to death. Is it bad to keep clotting? Yeah, it is. One of the major killers of, among us, heart attacks and strokes, most of which are caused by clots. Blood clotting is critically important. And here's how it works. See why I don't want to take time to talk about all this? Amen, yeah. <laughs> It's a series, a cascade of reactions. So down here you get the cross-linked fibrin clot that closes up the hole that lets you keep from bleeding to death. Here's what I want you to learn from this one. Do you know there's some folks whose blood doesn't clot real well? What are they called? Hemophiliacs. You know why they don't clot very well? Because in all hemophiliacs, there's different types of them. One little tiny step in this process doesn't work right. If that step right there doesn't function properly, your blood doesn't clot. It's another irreducibly complex system. You take out one piece and it doesn't work. And hemophiliacs traditionally have one process here. There's a, this step right here called, is called the Christmas factor. And if the Christmas factor isn't sufficient in your body, your blood doesn't clot. There's another major type of hemophiliac that's missing one of these farther up the chain here. All it takes is one little piece, and nothing will happen. So it's a complex system of reactions. And by the way, as I've already said to you, if you get this happening and it doesn't stop, you, you clock yourself to death. So there's a system that reverses all of this and stops the clotting. Automatic in every human being. But I want to get on to this one because it's more fun. The immune system, folks, in your body is absolutely incredible. 
and we don't understand it fully yet, as I'm sure you understand. But let me give you a little picture here. Here's a cancer cell, and if your body's working right, the T cells get after it. And here's what ends up the cancer cell. They suck it to death. Here are the T cells that have taken care of that cancer cell, and that's what's left of it when they get finished. If your body functions properly and the T cells get after it, they blow it up. Kids, it's better than Star Wars. What happens inside the body? Do you know you're constantly bombarded with enemies? Over here, bacteria. I can't get this thing to work. There you go. Bacteria, viruses, fungi, foreign proteins, these are your enemies. They're called pathogens. They're after you all the time. You're in a constant battle. This is a great lesson, Edwin, from Ephesians 6. It's very much like the spiritual life. Are we ever not in battle with Satan? No, it's constant. Your body is in constant battle with enemies. And if you didn't have a system built into your body to defeat those enemies, you'd be dead in a hurry. Do you know what your first line of defense is against these enemies? Your skin. You need to get on your knees tonight and thank God for your skin. It's the largest organ you have, and it is the first line of defense. It's kind of like in the old days when they built walls around cities. And you know if your skin is uh, affected some way, like people have terrible burns, one of the most dangerous times is when their skin is so infected like that and it doesn't keep the enemies out. So they put them in rooms and isolate them from any kind of possible disease that could get into them. What you probably don't know is that not only is your skin a barrier, kind of like a wall, but you remember that some cases in the walls they put little spikes on the top of the wall, so if you got to the top of the wall you'd still have to get over those spikes. Or maybe they'll put razor blades so you'd get cut and chopped up trying to get over the wall. Did you know your skin has that too? Did you know that in some laboratories People have to wear gloves to protect what they're working on from themselves. If you're working on RNA in a lab, you wear gloves to protect the RNA from you. Because on your skin, there are materials that chop up RNAs. And the reason is, most viruses are made of RNA. So you've got built into your skin a method by which your skin chops up viruses. Part of the defense system. In addition to that, there's some mammals, including us, that have another substance on here that chops up bacteria called megainins. And so you've got a great protective system. Your skin is marvelous. But listen, your enemies over here ain't seen nothing yet till they get inside the skin. Because inside the skin, there are three major immunity systems. There's the humoral immunity system, and then there's the cellular immunity system, and then there's the helper system down here, which I don't really have time to talk about. So here's what I'm going to tell you about the helper system down here. You see these helper T lymphocytes? Here's the way you need to remember them. They are like Barnabas. Barnabas was called the son of encouragement, and he went around encouraging everybody else, didn't he? These T lymphocytes, their job is to encourage the rest of these guys. They get in there and do your job, fellas. Only they do it chemically. They pump up the other guys so they can do their job better. Thank God for your T lymphocytes, your helper lymphocytes. 
We're going to talk about this humoral immunity system and this cellular immunity system for just a few minutes. All right, let's see here. So now the immune enemy's gotten inside your skin. He's in big trouble. Because here's the humoral immunity system. It makes B cells. B lymphocytes, they're called. B cells. Anybody know where those are made in your body? If you've, if you've had anybody sick with cancer, you've heard of B cells. They're made in your spine. And they're produced by the billions and billions and billions if your system's working right. Let me tell you a little bit about B cells. B cells, if they are functioning properly, will mature. And they will make plasma cells, which end up being veritable factories for what we call antibodies. Antibodies. B cells produce antibodies. Antibodies, folks, their job in your immune system is to identify enemies. Identify enemies. See if I can help you here. That's the shape of an antibody. It kind of looks like a Y. And when an enemy attacks, the various the ends of that antibody have identifiers. So it's kind of like these machines in Star Wars guys that go in. <laughs> the problems with antibodies is they're very specific. The ends of those Ys have certain chemicals on them that'll fit on certain things and not on other things. So if you have the wrong shaped head, it wouldn't fit on you. Yours is a little different, so maybe this would fit yours. But they're very specific. So your body has developed a system, I believe it's a planned system, whereby it can identify billions of enemies. And you have that many. Because each antibody is specific. But once they point you out, it's like, here's your enemy! That's what antibodies are for. And here's what happens. See this B cell right here? It's got an antibody attached to it, and here come the enemies, the antigens. Once one of those antigens is attached to that B cell, it gets into action, and it produces more B cells, and then it starts producing plasma cells and a memory cell, which I'll tell you about here in just a minute. Let me blow this up. So here comes the enemy. The, anti the uh, antibody attacks it and uh, points it out. You see how these enemies are now attached to these antibodies? And they send messages down in here to the B cell and say, Start making more antibodies now. And so it does that. It turns it into a veritable antibody machine. This plasma cell produces antibodies for that specific enemy at a rate of thousands per second. Are you getting tired of me saying thousands per second? I could say it another thousand times and wouldn't have covered it all. But here's the other neat thing, ladies and gentlemen. At the same time that it's doing that, it produces a memory cell. And that memory cell starts swimming around through your body. The average lifetime of a B cell in your body is a day and a half. That's why you have to keep making them. You know how long a memory cell lasts once it's produced? Take a guess. The rest of your life. So once an enemy has invaded your body and an antibody has identified it and the B cells have started producing those antibodies, it produces memory cells and from then on, if that enemy ever comes back in your body again, he, this memory cell's floating around and says, Oh, I know you! 
and the attack on the enemy is much better the next time. That's why, folks, adults are more immune to disease than children. Because we've been through a few things. And our body's full of memory cells that help us tap them the next time. Does this sound like a plan to you? Here's a typical antibody. It's got a heavy chain, this big long one here, and a light chain. And there's two pieces of it, and they attach together by these cross pieces. Here are the binding sites up top here, like I told you. Down here is the heavy chain. This is the site that connects to the cell. And interestingly enough, when these are first produced, they have a little oily substance down there in the bottom that sticks to that B cell. Pretty important because sticking to the B cell is what gets the message down into the B cell that says start making antibodies at thousands of per second. That's a typical antibody. And there it is attached to the B cell and it sends messages down here to the nucleus and says start turning this into a veritable machine to produce antibodies to attack this enemy. Over here in your stem cells are produced in your back in your backbone, in the marrow, it produces a whole host of antibodies. And then when a particular enemy gets attached to it, it makes that B cell produce nothing but that antibody. And if this enemy attaches to a different, it makes it produce that antibody. And if it attaches to a different, it makes it produce that antibody. And uh, the enemy is in trouble. So how do you get enough antibodies to face any enemy that might ever come at you? I've already told you there are millions and billions. So I'm going to briefly try to explain to you how that happens. The heavy chain I pointed out to you comes from the DNA. And the DNA has a cluster in it of which you could pick one out of 250. There's another cluster in which you could pick one out of 10. There's a third in which you can pick one out of six. And then you can recombine. You remember I told you last night there's spliceosomes and editosomes so that you can recombine stuff? That'll give you another 100. So altogether, you have a possibility of producing 250 times 10 times 6 times 100 or 1,500,000 different combinations for the heavy part. Remember I told you the DNA just doesn't code for one thing? The codes within codes? Here's a classic example. You can produce 1,500,000 different heavy chains for antibodies alone. Now, what about the small chain? Well, by a similar process, you can get 10,000 of those. So if you put one light chain and one heavy chain together at random, you can get 10,000 times 1,500,000 or 15 billion combinations in your body. How many different antibodies your body can produce? You think out of 15 billion, you might be able to identify any enemy that invades you? You do. And my guess is we haven't learned enough about this yet. It's probably 30, 40, 50, 60 billion. We just don't know yet. So the humoral immunity system produces the antibodies which identify the enemy. I'm sorry to tell you, folks. Antibodies don't kill anything. So when I did this to you, all that says is you're the enemy and we're going to get you. 
And if anybody's work right, there's not just one here, there's one here and one here and one here and one here. They're pointing to him from every direction. Okay? You ready for this? The enemy's pointed out. Now what do you do with him? Here's what you do with him. Does this make you tired? This, ladies and gentlemen, is another cascade of chemical reactions. Much like the one I showed you for blood clotting. Where this one, this one here depends on that one. This one depends on that one. This one depends on that one. This one depends on that one. And right on down until down here, once you get to this point, you've just killed the enemy. But the antibody sets off this one. Which sets off that one. Which sets off that one. And these are going along at the same time and they join together and they get this combined factor down here called the complement pathway. And when it's finished, it's boom! And you're dead. But it's all chemical. And you know what? If that step right there doesn't work, guess what? You say it. Nothing works. It's another cascade of chemical reactions where every part has to be there in order for it to function. And then there's cellular immunity. I'm going to go real quick with this one because these are your heavy machinery. These are like the big, what do they call it in Star Wars, where they zap you. I don't remember the name. Death Star. Yeah, that's good. All right, so here's your T lymphocyte. If the T lymphocyte matures, and it matures when it gets in contact with an enemy, it starts developing, and it gets to this huge stage here, and it blows up the enemy. This is your heavy artillery. T lymphocytes. The B lymphocytes are identifiers. The T lymphocytes are killers. And the T helpers are healthy guys. Get out there and do your job. So we've looked at the biochemistry of vision. We looked at blood clotting. We looked at the immune system. And folks, every one of them is so amazingly irreducibly complex. It is beyond imagination. It is no wonder that at the end of his book, here's what B. he says. These scientific obstacles serve as stark examples of the mountains and chasms that block a Darwinian explanation of life. Mountains and chasms. Think of the Grand Canyon. Every one of them. In fact, every stage of every one of them is a grand canyon. The result of these cumulative efforts to investigate the cell, to investigate life at the molecular level, is a loud, clear, piercing cry of design. The result is so unambiguous and so significant that it must be ranked as one of the greatest achievements in the history of science. The discovery rivals those of Newton and Einstein, Lavoisier and Schrodinger, Pasteur and Darwin. The observation of the intelligent design of life is so momentous as the observation is as momentous as the observation that the earth goes around the sun or that disease is caused by bacteria or that radiation is emitted in quanta. The magnitude of the victory gained at such a great cost through the sustained effort over the course of decades would be expected to send champagne corks flying around the world in labs. The triumph of science should evoke cries of eureka from 10,000 throats. Should occasion much hand slapping, high fiving, and perhaps even an excuse to take the day off. Folks, everybody ought to be cheering that we've discovered about the intelligent design of life. 
but no bottles have been uncorked, no hands slapped. Instead, a curious embarrassed silence surrounds the stark complexity of the cell. When the subject comes up in public, feet start to shuffle and breathing gets a bit labored. In private, people are a bit more relaxed. Many explicitly admit the obvious, stare at the ground, shake their heads and let it go at that. Why is that? Somebody was asking me yesterday, why can't people see how clear this is? Here's Behe's opinion. Why does the scientific community not greedily embrace its startling discovery? Why is the observation of design handled with intellectual gloves? The dilemma is, and I need to paint you this picture first. He said it's like this. There's a bunch of people in an empty room, all getting down on the floor looking around for something, and in the middle of the room is an elephant, and nobody sees it. And he says one of the problems is, while one side of the element may be labeled intelligent design, the other might be labeled God. And I can tell you, I've been told personally, we're not letting God's foot in the door. Period. And if that's your view, you've just excluded the only possible alternative. So you've got to go with a natural explanation. And I'm not going there. I'm telling you, there's a lot that Darwin didn't know. And I believe with all my heart, if Darwin were here in our day, and he knew the complexity of what I've just described to you, he would say to you tonight, audience, my theory absolutely breaks down. Because there are lots of systems that are so complex they could have never been formed by small steps over millions of years. That's where I stand, and I believe I stand on firm ground scientifically as I read God's other book. And I challenge anyone in this audience, do your own study. Don't you believe me? You dig deeply into the science of how life works, and I pray with all that's in me that you'll be convinced with me that God's testimony is so loud and clear it seems almost impossible to miss it. And I thank you, class, for staying with me, even through the heavy chemistry. I think it's worth looking at. And I appreciate your time.